0: Welcome to the Mornings with Sue and Andy podcast for Tuesday, May 23rd. We begin with our weekly conversation with Mercedes Stevenson, Global News Ottawa Bureau Chief and host of The West Block. This time out, we get the latest on the special investigation into Chinese interference in our federal elections, including the next steps following recommendations from former Governor General David Johnston.
1: Next, with the Alberta provincial election just days away now, we take a look at where the NDP and UCP stand on issues involving the energy sector. We speak with Ed Whittingham, clean energy policy and finance consultant.
0: And finally, we've heard the health warnings surrounding the wildfire smoke and those suffering from respiratory conditions, but just how much of a health concern is the smoke for the average person? We discussed with Dr. Ted Jablonski, our on call family physician. And sadly,
1: 10 police officers have been killed in Canada since September. Police chiefs across the country sounding the alarm. Violence in Canadian communities was the focus of this week's episode of The West Block. Host and Global News Ottawa Bureau Chief Mercedes Stevenson joins us now to talk about it. Good morning, Mercedes hey good morning guys thanks so much for joining us before we get to that obviously a super important topic but uh also big news today a report will come out today about and as to whether there will be or should be an inquiry called into election interference in canada that report supposed to come down today and the prime minister said he will abide by it right
2: That's right. So this is the former Governor General of Canada, David Johnston, who has been tasked by Prime Minister Trudeau as the special rapporteur to look into foreign interference. And one of the first decisions and and, uh, information that he's going to release in that role is whether or not he believes that a public inquiry is necessary. So we will find that out today. And the Prime Minister, as you mentioned, has said, he will abide by that. There's a number of ways that uh, Mr. Johnston could recommend this. It could be a full-scale public inquiry of the likes of what we saw around the Gomery inquiry. It could be something more limited, like we saw after the convoy. It could be something that has special powers to deal with classified information. Uh, But keep in mind, if it does, we won't be able to hear that in the public uh, sphere because classified information would still be dealt with behind closed doors as it was with the convoy Um, sit down where where the justice really was looking at things, but we weren't able to see what those were. It fed into his final report, but uh, don't expect that you're gonna be seeing like internal documents, that kind of thing. So either way that this plays, uh, potentially very damaging for the government either way. Uh, If he says that there is a need for a public inquiry after there was quite a bit of resistance from the government on that, uh, there's a risk there. There's a risk of what could come out in the public inquiry. On the other hand, if he recommends against a public inquiry, it puts the prime minister back in the spot of having to decide whether he's going to override David Johnston's uh, decision. And if he doesn't, the political fallout from people who are concerned about what's happened uh, and, and the very large number of national security experts who have said that a public inquiry is the way to go on this.
0: And even if we do, uh, you know, go for that public inquiry at this point, like you say, it's a very precarious position for the PMO and, uh, you know, all things surrounding the, uh, you know, interference claims. But will we ever as the public know the truth? Because, yeah, as you mentioned, so much sensitive info can't be released to the public Is there an opportunity that if he says no public inquiry, that we'll never know exactly what happened?
2: I mean, even if he says yes to the public inquiry, there's a significant chance we'll never know what happened. Uh, Because this is all so highly classified, the process for declassifying it to the public, I'm not even sure exists. Now, when we've talked to former national security advisors to the prime minister, they've said, you know, you can release more information. You can declassify certain things. And in fact, our allies do it much more regularly than Canada does. But in terms of specifics on, for example, what was in the thesis report that was briefed to the Liberal Party during the election period, uh, I think it's highly unlikely that we'll ever really get to the bottom of that. Uh, The problem is there's a trust factor there. If people don't know what happened for sure and, and it stays as, you know, he said, he said, uh, that is uh, problematic for the government it's problematic for our democratic institutions. so maybe somebody will be able to come up with a a way to declassify some of this information but I suspect with the way that things are classified in Canada uh, and how tightly even information that really is not operationally sensitive is held uh, it would be pretty remarkable if that happened nothing's ever impossible it would certainly restore trust if people were able to see those documents but do I think it's highly likely we'll see that Uh, probably not
1: Your thoughts too, Mercedes, you you mentioned it off the top, Pierre Polyev, making a big deal out of this. And I think most Canadians do think it's a big deal. Uh, Trudeau is kind of between a rock and a hard place in terms of, so if David Johnson recommends that there not be an inquiry, shouldn't Trudeau call one anyway? I mean, don't we all deserve to get the truth on this?
2: well i mean it all depends on what you think a public inquiry will accomplish Uh, the recommendations in favor of it is that it would allow for cross-examination for more public information uh, for an organization that does not report to the prime minister to talk to to talk to canadians and by an organization i mean CSIS. i mean all kinds of other ones including uh, the parliamentary committee that currently exists but reports to the prime minister so there's no question i think that it would lead to greater transparency potentially greater accountability but keep in mind for example when you've seen uh, members of his staff testify you don't Tend to come away knowing a whole lot more so what would really matter in all this is what the terms are for that public inquiry what capability how long how thorough how deep can it go how much can it deal with classified information uh, but it really would have to be a, a significant level of declassification to get it out into the public that said that's not to say that a public inquiry would not achieve a lot of things I mean I've spoken to plenty of former experts inside government who think that even though that likely would not expose all of the things that people want to be able to see and find out for the themselves, uh, whether or not it happened uh, and what exactly was going down and what the government knew and who knew it when, um, that it would still offer a greater level of transparency and that that transparency is important for public trust. So the Prime Minister could overrule David Johnston. Um, you know, <laughs> that's, that's a tough position to be in. Why appoint a special rapporteur and say you're going to abide by them if you're not going to abide by them? But the political risk here to the Prime Minister and the Liberal government is real.
0: All right, let's switch gears. Sue gave you that stat off the top with 10 police officers having been killed in Canada since September. Uh, violence in Canadian communities, one of the big focuses on the West Block this weekend, the police chiefs sounding the alarm. What are you hearing as far as a plan ahead? Because this is not city-specific or province-specific Mercedes. Uh, what do the police chief, uh, you know, prepare or are, are are, what are they prepared to do for this?
2: So the the police chiefs won in stricter bail, uh, and that is what the government has introduced. We'll have to see whether or not it actually works, uh, because there's a lot of time ahead, obviously, before this is implemented. And there's more factors to crime than just whether or not people are getting bailed. But there was a real concern about a small number of very violent repeat offenders, uh, often using weapons, getting bailed. So there's, there's sort of a big question um, around that and, and how this is all going to play out. But what the Liberals have done for now is they have introduced new legislation that will say that if you are a violent repeat offender who offends with weapons specifically, note the weapons could be knife, gun, firearm, it could be uh, domestic violence is also considered to be a part of this, then you have something now called reverse onus. And reverse onus is that you have to prove you're not a threat to the community in order to get out, which is normally the opposite of bail. You, you under the Canadian Constitution, have basically a right to not be held um, without proof when you haven't been found guilty, right? You've been charged. So at this point, the charge is a charge. It's not a sentence. It's not proof. You haven't admitted to anything. A court hasn't found you guilty. So you cannot be held without just cause, which is why people... We're getting bail and also the liberals had introduced some legislation that in some cases made it easier for people to get bail so now it will be different if you are involved in certain firearms offenses uh if you have a, a history of violent offenses with a weapon then now you'll have to prove the reasons why you are not a threat to the community to get out versus uh it's sort of being an automatic that a judge basically has to release you unless there's a really high bar to suggest that that you will uh, offend while you are in the public and this is something that a lot of police chiefs have been asking for prosecutors provinces um and that th- this is sort of where the liberals have gone with this for now so it- it's a total 180 for them politically on bail
1: so much to talk about so much going on across the country thanks so much for joining us mercedes always appreciate your take Thanks for having me. Thank you. Mercedes Stevenson, Global News Ottawa Bureau Chief and host of the West Block. And just a reminder that the West Block re-airs every Sunday at 11 a.m. right here on QR Calgary.
0: How will issues around Alberta's energy sector weigh into voters' minds on Election Day? Joining us to discuss Alberta's place on the global energy stage is Ed Whittingham, clean energy policy and finance consultant. He's also co-host of the Energy Versus Climate podcast. Good morning to you, Ed.
3: Good morning to you, Sue and Andy. Thanks so much for having me on the show on this Tuesday morning.
0: Hey, thank you for taking the time. Now, we know Alberta is a world leader in carbon capture technology, but does that technology allow Alberta's energy sector to continue to have a robust oil and gas sector? Can the two live together, essentially?
3: Well, so yes, Alberta has been a leader in carbon capture. Uh, When you look at uh, what Shell did with its Quest project going back more than 10 years ago, It developed a project that is capturing about a megaton, a million tons worth of CO2 per year at its Godford upgrader. So the question is, can we replicate projects like that here in Alberta? Now, it's clear you mentioned energy. We can certainly do that in other sectors like cement. And, you know, people might have caught the announcement uh, that Heidelberg Materials in Edmonton made about a carbon capture project. Going ahead at its Edmonton plant with federal help. Now, can we replicate that elsewhere, like in oil and gas? That remains to be seen. But certainly, both the federal government and the province are doing their best to put in place policy supports to enable exactly that.
1: Ed, how do you see Alberta in terms of the green transition? Can we place ourselves in, you know, the top countries as, as global leaders?
3: Well, we're certainly the global leaders in intention right now, and we're global leaders in now trying to figure out through our own companies and their skunk works, the technologies that we can use to decarbonize, particularly the oil and gas sector. And and what we know is that both parties running in this election and pretty much all Albertans really want us to continue to be a leader in producing energy while tackling climate change. But the physics are definitely challenging when it comes to decarbonizing oil and gas. Um, The physics are easier when we talk about being a leader in non-oil and gas sources of uh, energy, such as wind, solar, and geothermal. And Alberta is certainly a leader in those sources of of power and, and by far is leading the country in terms of new wind power, new solar power coming onto our grid.
0: We're speaking with Ed Whittingham, and of course, Ed is a energy policy and finance consultant, also co-host of the Energy Versus Climate podcast. Ed, nothing new when we talk about carbon capture and climate change and doing what we can. That's nothing new in the globe, and nothing new when it comes to energy production. But we have a very unique stance here in Canada because we, we want to be good at both. We've established that we're great when it comes to energy production. I'm wondering, though does any other country on the face of the earth face the exact same challenges we have here? Because we do, we're kind of caught in the middle. Is any other country doing it right?
3: Well, sure. Look no further than to the South of us at our neighbor in the United States. So the United States has a robust uh, energy sector, including oil and gas production. The United States wants to decarbonize its energy sector. Now, to be clear, The contribution of the energy sector there, both to its GDP and to its overall global greenhouse gas emissions, is less than what it is here in Canada. But in terms of leading under the Biden administration and a piece of legislation called the Inflation Reduction Act, which is a bit of a misnomer, it's actually a clean energy and economic diversification act They've moved forward very boldly and are spending on the order of about $380 billion to position its economy and its companies as leaders in this race to provide low-carbon energy. And some of the supports that they put in place there, we're trying to put in place here in Canada so we can keep pace. And if we don't, we run the risk of that capital investment that should be happening here in Canada flowing down to the United States. And, and I think I speak for all Canadians in that we don't want that. We mm-hmm. want that investment up here.
1: Ed, we're less than a week away, six days, in fact, from the provincial election. In your view, does the NDP or the UCP have a plan that will take realistic and doable steps towards a green transition?
3: So I think they have quite different plans. I, I heard uh, um, former Premier, now UCP leader running for re-election, Danielle Smith, speak at a conference of Conservatives in Ottawa back in March. What she said is that Alberta is a natural gas basin for heating, for stoves and electricity, that our future should be gas, and that's how we're going to lower Alberta's emissions. We're going to export gas to the rest of the world, which frankly takes some mental gymnastics to to wrap one's head around and she she name-checked carbon capture we've talked about that hydrogen and even nuclear energy or nuclear power without specifying in that case where the nuclear power should or could um be built in in alberta rachel Notley is far more embracing of uh the role of wind solar and geothermal power in creating jobs while decarbonizing alberta's grid but both of them to be clear champion the oil and gas sector's ability to continue to be a leader while trying to tackle climate change. That's one where uh, they're they're both uh, completely in line.
0: Those trying to educate themselves, and interestingly, today, uh, Tuesday, we're kicking off The advance polls and, of course, all eyes six days from now, Election Day, the 29th, want to get as much information as possible. But this is your area of expertise, clean energy policy and finance uh, consultant. Um, Do you think that the average Calgarian or Albertan really understands this? Because to me, it does seem very complex. Do do, do you think that the people you come into contact with, not in your world, know exactly what these choices are and and where we're at uh, in 2023?
3: I'm always amazed and pleasantly surprised by the understanding of the average voter. I mean, we live in a province uh, that is an energy producer and and it, it, you know most of us have some sort of connection either directly directly to the to the energy sector, and of course, all of us do indirectly through the revenues that we collect to pay for schools and hospitals, et cetera. And so, yes, I think it's complicated. But Albertans understand complicated issues. And so when I talk to people, their literacy is great. What they're looking for, I think, is just a clear plan. How are we going to decarbonize our oil and gas industry? Not to mention other sectors, important sectors like cement. And increasingly these days, they say, well, what are we doing on things like tailings ponds? You know, everyone, not everyone, but many people have heard of that spill, Imperial oil spill Mm -hmm. up at the Curl Oil Sand site they're offended by it. They don't like the way that the regulators handled it. They don't want it happen to happen again, just like they don't want orphan wells left behind by derelict oil and gas companies sitting there as a blight on the landscape. We want to take care of that as Albertans.
1: Should be an important topic come election time. Thank you so much for your time this morning. Really appreciate it, Ed.
3: Hey, uh, Sue and Andy, thanks for the time. This was fun.
1: Thank you. Ed Whittingham is Clean Energy Project Policy and Finance Consultant and the co-host of the Energy Versus Climate podcast. It's been an early start to the wildfire season here in Alberta. In fact, as we all know, multiple times last week, measurements on the Air Quality Health Index for the city of Calgary peaked at 10 plus, the highest on the measurement scale. We all know that smoke can be dangerous for people suffering from respiratory issues, but what about for the rest of us? To talk about it, we're joined by Dr. Ted Jablonski, our on call family physician. Good morning, Dr. Jay.
4: Good morning.
1: No denying it's been very smoky out there. How concerned should we be for our own health?
4: Uh, Concerned enough to, to, to take this seriously. Um, when the air quality is worse, we do really have to uh, be cognizant of that and act accordingly. It's not something you can just ignore and not worry about, even if you have healthy lungs and you're you're healthy generally. This is something we do need to take, uh, uh, pay some attention to, uh, which is really unfortunate, and it is coming extremely early this uh, this season. So we've got a long summer and fall ahead of us, uh, given all this.
0: Dr. G, I know that some of us, maybe it's just going to the grocery store, maybe doing some yard work, mowing the lawn for a half hour. For those folks, is is it different parameters than those who, you know, like to run outside, it, it might play <laughs> soccer. I mean, obviously, different parameters for different people. Are, do the precautions apply to all of us?
4: Yeah, they, they apply to all of us. So you limit the, the amount you're outdoors and you limit how uh, vigorous your exercise is. So, yes, going for a short walk, say, uh, to the store or something is probably a whole lot better than kids running around and playing soccer for an hour uh, that's a very different so you avoid that really uh, uh vigorous activity uh, if you have to be outdoors try to limit the amount of time to stay indoors when you can so i mean we do have to get places we do have to do things uh so uh, you know we can't avoid everything but we can certainly avoid how much time we spend outdoors and when we don't have to be indoors we stay indoors on those really smoky days
1: so, Dr. Jay, is there anything we can actually do to minimize our health risk? I mean, I've seen a lot of people wearing masks, but I do believe, you know, when it was high time through COVID, we were told, like, th- those masks really wouldn't do anything for smoke particulate.
4: Yeah, so uh, interest uh, N95 masks apparently can uh, really make a difference. So, your typical cloth mask or... Um, like a handmade mask, a cloth mask, just a face covering is not good enough. These, the particulate matter is very, very small, so unusually small. And that's why it's so difficult because it will go very deep into the airway. So an N95 mask can uh, filter out a lot of that particular matter. And that's the issue. It's this particulate matter that's very tiny, we breathe it, it goes deep into our lungs, it doesn't get stuck uh, in, in the nose uh, or it doesn't get filtered out by our own body, it goes deep in. And that's really why this is actually so uh, so noxious or so uh, problematic for us is because uh, those particular matter can really aggravate asthma, COPD, can really, uh, apparently can be a cancer-causing uh, thing akin to smoking cigarettes. It really is very similar to that.
0: At what point, uh, Dr. G, I think we've all learned too much uh, than we've ever wanted to know about the air quality health index that's out there. It goes from zero to 10 plus. Is there a, some kind of a, a middle point where you think it's safe? Is it four and under, for example, or does it matter if it's even at a two and you're spending an elongated time outside?
4: Yeah, I guess it, it all hinges on that activity again. If it's uh, four or lower, if it's considered that low risk, I think you can do uh, be outdoors a bit, uh, moderate. Um, you know, exercise or, or light. If it's higher, if it's in that moderate, moderate zone four and above, I think you really have to be careful with being outside at all, and definitely limit how aggressive you are, how vigorous. But even at you know low three, two, uh, I don't know that I would uh, be doing something really, really vigorous for hours on end. I think we still have to be quite careful with that. Uh, if it's really in those upper ranges at eight, nine, ten, etc., you're indoors closing the windows making sure if you're driving in the car your windows are closed you're putting recirculation on your uh on your furnace or air conditioner you're being very very careful because now you're really trying to uh isolate yourself from that smoke
1: what about kids and pets dr j smaller lungs are they taking in more is it worse for them
4: yes yeah, so apparently the the worst is newborns. Um, more than uh, more than children so newborns are the most at risk uh, pregnant people elderly people with chronic respiratory conditions but kids um, are at risk and they like to be outside and playing obviously and pets you've got to take them for a walk so (laughs) they're going to get exposed one way or the other uh, and they apparently do get affected to some degree uh, just like humans they have lungs just like us
0: All right. And, you know, that's a weird time of the year. Sue and I were talking about this this morning off mic in the sense that if you're lucky enough to have AC, which which I do not, I think Susan, the market for AC at this point, Mm -mm. it's too hot to open the wind. It's too hot. uh, You don't want to turn the AC on quite yet. Right. It's not that hot, but you don't want to open the windows to let the smoke in. Should we be worried about our own health with this smoke indoors if we have windows cracked?
4: uh well if if you're letting the smoke in into your house then yes there you're still getting exposed albeit at a lesser rate than being outside like fully exposed so i guess um there's ways of of uh, having your furnace even without air conditioning your furnace recirculating air and you make sure that you're there's nothing you're not bringing in external air you're keeping it just in a truly uh recirculation mode uh, you're uh, apparently the best air filters are, are really ideal so you look at your air filter do you have one that's good um, so you don't need air conditioning you can use your own you know furnace system and, and recirculation air to keep air going but that's a better option than opening windows even a little bit
1: dr j appreciate it stay indoors do you don't do you go running when it's like this
4: I God, I used to. I'm I'm more careful these days. I guess I'm getting older, so
1: I good, am good. Just, okay,
4: uh, myself personally, so I am being a, way more careful these days.
1: Stay healthy, and uh, thanks for joining us this morning.
4: Okay. You betcha.
1: That is Dr. Ted Jablonski, our on-call family physician.